Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where we talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. Uh, this week, we are continuing our series on Ephesians. We're studying the book verse by verse, a real in-depth, deep Bible study, good old school kind of deal. Um, and so if you have missed any of the other uh, series, um, any other videos, podcasts, whatever in this series, uh, be sure to go back and watch them, listen to them, catch up, because every week is built on the last. Uh, and so this week, we are starting chapter two. Um, it took us two weeks to get through chapter one, and then we did a week before that, that was just kind of introduction, where we covered that Paul wrote the letter, that he wrote it to the churches in Asia Minor as a circular, rather than specifically to the Ephesian church, but because it was delivered first to the Ephesian church, and probably distributed from the Ephesian church, we've historically called it Ephesians, and that's okay, because it was written to the Ephesians. That city, Ephesus, is in Asia, um, the, the modern-day Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. And it was written as a, as a circular, that it wasn't written specifically to address any issue or to a specific people group. It was written basically as a bird's eye view of Christianity. And we know that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossian church at the same time. Um, he was in prison. He was taking his time. And so he was thinking about what he was writing. And so this letter sounds and looks different from most of what we know Paul wrote. Um, but that's okay. That's, that doesn't change the fact that he wrote it. It's It actually gives us a, another glimpse into the mind of a very, very brilliant man. And, and somebody who is very devoted to following Christ. I mean, he is the Apostle Paul, after all. Um, and so we're still in the first half of this letter. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about how Jesus is God's tool. He's his tool to, to unite a very divided universe. You know, the, the universe is, is very broken. It's not as it cr was created to be. And I mean that in the sense of everything is divided. Man against nature, man against man, man against himself, God against uh, the spiritual forces of evil. Uh, it's just there's separation everywhere if you look at creation. And Jesus is the unifier. He's the one who reunites everything. And so we're in that first half where Paul is talking about how Jesus is God's tool of unification. Um, the second half is all about the church as God's, as Jesus's tool of unification, but we will get there when we get there. Uh, so uh, just a quick recap, chapter one, Paul starts by saying, hey, I'm Paul, what's up? And then he goes into this song where he's talking about all the things that we have from God through Jesus, and then he goes into a prayer for the churches he's writing to. And when that prayer ends, that is where we're picking up. And the way you need to think about this section, chapter two, verses one through 10, is kind of like driving in the wrong direction. Uh, this is an illustration that N.T. Wright uh, talked about in one of his books, but he says it's like driving in the wrong direction. How do you know when you're driving in the wrong direction? Well, initially you don't. You think you're going the right direction or else you wouldn't be going that way, right? You know, if, if you're driving along, you're a new part of town or something, and you know, you, you think you're going someplace and the landmarks and the signs that should be showing up don't start showing up, you, you start to think like, maybe I made a wrong turn. Most of the time, especially if you're a guy, your pride won't let you admit that, you know, you'll just, yeah, it's just going to turn into right. You know, I, I'm just not familiar with this section, right? Uh, but eventually, after so long of not arriving when you should have, you realize, I went the wrong way. And so what this section deals with is, is what does it look like? How can we tell when we're going the wrong direction in our life? What does that look like? And then what did God do to get us in the right direction? So Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Let's read it as a whole because it is one thought 
collection. It's, it's a one unified thought, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you're an English teacher out there and you're watching this, you will absolutely hate this section purely from a grammatical standpoint. It is awful. Like this is not a a grammatically correct section in the original language and even in the English. Like the translators did their best to kind of make it flow. But Paul starts sentence after sentence without finishing them. And then he throws sentences in the middle of sentences and there's a big long run on sentence and it's better to think of this section kind of like a, a, a song. Again, you know, it's it's more of a just it flows. It's Paul communicating the thoughts as they come to his mind rather than some well-laid-out argument, even though this is probably one of the most controversial and most cited verses in the New Testament when it comes to topics of grace versus works. And we're going to talk about that. But, I mean, for being such a powerful and influential section of of the New Testament, it's really not very well spelled out. It's grammatically terrible, Um, but it's beautiful in its thoughts. So, 2 verse 1. Let's let's just get to that first verse. You know, the first three verses are kind of a thought, but the first verse really carries a lot of weight. It has three big words in it that we need to make sure we understand. You know, and before we get to that, it's also important to note that Paul is, uh, he's continuing his use of you referring to Gentiles to non-Jewish people and us referring to Jews. He's writing to Gentile people, that's who's primarily making up the churches in this part of the world at the time, from a Jewish perspective. So when he says you, he's referring to Jews, and then to us, he's referring to, or to you, he's referring to Gentiles, to us, he's referring to Jews, and then he says we, all right? And it's important that you see that he, he says the we means everybody, that Jews and Gentiles both were, were dead in their trespassing sins. But we're going to talk about that now. So the first thing is he says you are dead. Now, if you think of what dead means in a physical sense, it means your body is ceasing to function, that the systems that keep us breathing and talking and thinking and working have stopped. And, you know, they, if any one of them stops, it's really hard for the rest of them to keep going. And so to be dead means that you physically, you just, you, you cease to exist in this form. You know, your body may still be there, but it's not functioning anymore. Paul is not saying that you were dead physically, right? He's not saying that you, you weren't alive. This isn't talking about pre-birth or something like that. This is talking about spiritually dead. The part that truly matters, because this physical part, it wears out. It's not going to last forever, but the spiritual side of us, that's the, that soul part of us, that lasts forever. And he says, that part was dead before you knew Jesus. 
you your state of existence before your conversion to Christianity was was dead. You might have been physically alive, but spiritually, there's no heartbeat. Right? And the other thing to note here is this word in the Greek is is actually an adjective. It's not a noun. You know, a noun is a person, a place, a thing. This isn't a noun. It's an adjective. It's describing the state you are in in your sins and trespasses. So what what are our sins and trespasses? And I know if you've been doing this Christianity thing for a while, or maybe you've been around it, you might think you know what sin is. You know, sin is the bad things you do, right? It's you did a bad thing. You're sin. You you said a cuss word. You sinned, or you know, I saw you steal that pen in second grade from um, what's her face sitting next to you. I saw that. You sinned. That's a bad thing. But the word sin actually doesn't really denote doing a bad thing. The word there is hamartia. In this version, it's hamartias. But it's an archery term. And you've probably heard that before. But I don't think it sinks in very often what that truly means, right? So it, the, the ancients, the first century, they loved games. Like there were riots over horse races and, and, and chariot racing back in the first century. And I mean, the sporting being something people are... Uh, way too passionate about is nothing new. And so the, the the people that he was writing to, they would have been familiar with the Olympic Games or the Isthmian Games or you know the games in Rome or the Colosseum or the Gladiatorial Comet. They were familiar with sporting events. And one of the big events was archery. And so when you'd shoot and you miss the bullseye, the distance between the bullseye and where you actually hit, that was the sin of your shot. Now I want you to think about that because... That doesn't mean you did something wrong, right? If you have a sin of just a little bit, that's actually a pretty good shot if you're far away, right? That's not a bad thing, but you still missed the mark. Sin is when we miss the mark of what we should be. And if you think in those terms, you realize that there's sin all over our lives. Are you the the father, the mother you should be to your children? Are you the husband or wife that you should be to your spouse? Are you the child you should be to your parents? Are you the employee you should be? The employer, are you the manager you should be? Are you the brother or sister that you should be? Are you the friend that you should be? Are you the citizen you should be? Are you the driver you should be? You know who you are with the road rage. Are you taking care of your health the way you should be? Are you being who God says this is who you should be? Or are you failing? Now, I think if you're honest with yourself, and I know if I'm honest with myself, I fail in almost every one of those aspects and then some. I'm not who I should be. I do not hit the mark the way I ought to. And so sin is really, it's everywhere. So if you change your thinking about sin, instead of it being like, I'm not a bad person, I don't do bad things, like, no, but I definitely am not who I should be. I'm not who I was created to be. I am failing in pretty much every aspect of my life. I'm not a terrible parent, but I'm not the parent I could be. I'm not a terrible husband, but I'm not the husband I could be. I'm not a terrible friend, but I'm not the friend that could be. Sin is missing the mark, and it's everywhere in our lives. And so he says, you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. And trespasses, the word there is peripatoma, and this specific is peripatosin. And it's, it's, it's kind of more like the doing the bad thing. It implies that this is for those times when you intentionally 
chose the wrong choice. When you went the wrong road, when you should have went down the right road, when you 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 messed up and you know you should know you should have done better. This is when you do the bad thing. So you were dead in the the times that you failed to be who you're supposed to be, who you could be, who you should be. And the times that you just plain old did the wrong thing. You were dead when you lived your life in that state. Spiritually, you were just, you're done. You were not alive. So he says, this is the state that you are walking around in before you know Jesus. It's essentially like being a zombie, right? I know to, to get kind of pop culturally zeitgeist, like this is what everybody can relate to. But I mean, zombie films and movies are everywhere. They're incredibly popular. Uh, but that's a really good way of thinking about it, how a zombie will walk around and it just pursues one thing, right? And a zombie, it's usually like eating people or something like that. When we're walking around before we know Jesus, we're pursuing one thing, ourselves. We're pursuing our happiness. We're pursuing feeling better. We're pursuing something that ultimately is is selfishness. It's 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 about us. And when we do that, we consume things that take away the parts of us that God wants to be in us, that take away our, our ability to be who God wants us to be, that when you sin, you lose your innocence. You know, after you sin, you lose this, that, that sense of innocence, and that can't be given back to you. You lose your ideals about what's right versus what's wrong, whereas before you were like, no, I'm never going to be a part of that. I'm not going to do that thing. And then they start to fade to gray until eventually you know, your ideals of what's right and wrong might get a little skewed. Or, and when we, when we consume like that, that, that sinful lifestyle, that pre-Jesus lifestyle, we, we can lose our self-control. You know, sin goes from being something that we abhor, like, I would never do that. You know, I would no, I wouldn't touch that to the time you, you do it once and you really feel bad about it till you do it again and you don't feel as bad about it until eventually you, you just do it without thinking about it. You don't feel any guilt at all till you know, eventually you could get to a point where it's a habit or even an addiction. That's that's one of the big signs that you're going the wrong direction. When the things in your life control you and you don't control them. When your ideas of what is right versus wrong start to drift dramatically those are those are the signs that hey you're not going the way you should be that's that's being dead so let's read this whole verses one through three together as a thought because he continues from that he says this is where you were but you were dead done dead as a doorknob spiritually ain't no heartbeat right continues on he says and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, uh, did you hear the language shift? He says, you guys once were dead. This is the way you lived, referring to the Gentiles. And he says, but but we all were like that, you know. So it's important that you realize that he's teaching from a Jewish perspective to Gentiles, but he's doing it in a way that says, yeah, everybody lived like this. Everybody was under death. Everybody was walking zombies, right? But he, he what he does is he spells out, listen, this is the things that draw you down the wrong road. These are the the confusing directions that get you lost. This is these are the things that pull you away from Jesus, from the thing that you need most. He says there's internal and there's external. Let's start with the external. The first one he says is, is the course of this world. We went along with the world. We went along with the flow. This is kind of referring to what Jesus said is the, the road to hell is wide and it's really well paved and it's a smooth ride. Like, and everybody goes along it. 
Like the road that leads away from Jesus is a nice road. The road to Jesus is like a, a goat path on the side of a mountain. It ain't very easy to go along and it's, it's difficult to follow. He says that the course of this world, that it pushes you away from the things that Jesus wants you to have in your life. You know, the world says if somebody does you wrong, you get revenge. They say if, if, you, if somebody stands for the things that you think are wrong, you hate them. They are your enemy and you fight against them. And they usually do that in the sense of like intolerance. I know that's kind of weird, but like you, if you if they're intolerant, you hate them. You be intolerant of their intolerance. It's yeah, I know it's confusing. Uh, the world says that you worry about you. You are the most important thing in your life. Your happiness, your well-being. Take care of yourself. But Jesus says you got to forgive people who do the wrong thing to you. You got to forgive people who wrong you. You got to love people who hate you. You got to love people who see things differently from you. You have to serve other people. You can't be focused on yourself at all. You have to serve other people above yourself. Paul is saying that the world is going to pull you in the exact opposite direction that Jesus is trying to bring you along. This other thing he says is that we have a spiritual enemy. He says the prince of the power of the air. Now, that's a weird thing to call the devil, right? And I know it's weird, like, if you're not familiar with the Christianity thing or, like, you just, you're, you're from a secular mindset. Somebody says, hey, that the devil's out to, like, pull you away from Jesus. It, it can be very, like, uh, well, these people are preaching weirdo stuff. They're, you know, that sounds like Lord of the Rings kind of made up stuff. But the truth is we do have an enemy. It's not somebody, the devil is not somebody who's on par with God. It's not, you know, yin and yang. Uh, they're, they're equal and it's just going to be a knockout fight to see who wins. It's, it's The devil's already lost. His whole game plan is to just spoil God's creation, namely his favorite part of it, humanity. And because he knows that, that God wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to be in communion with him. He wants us to, to be close with him. But if we don't accept his invitation to accept what Jesus did on the cross, we can't be. And so his entire game plan is to, is to keep us away from God. His entire game plan is to convince us that God's not real, that the devil's not real. That none of this is real. That's this just either philosophy or just completely made up waste of time. You know, I think that's why spiritual warfare has changed throughout the centuries. You know, once before the modern era, you know, spirituality was was something everybody just kind of accepted. That yes, there were demons out there. Yes, there are angels out there. There are spiritual forces acting on us. That was just the worldview out there and it still is in a lot of parts of the world but in the western world nowadays we, we view this kind of stuff as just kind of made up mumbo jumbo it can't be real and i think that's that's the strategy of the devil because it's way more effective to convince people that the enemy isn't real than it is to knock down drag out fight somebody if you don't realize you're in a fight you're gonna lose that fight and so this is why, you know, the, Paul says, you know, the, ancient, the, the prince of the power of the air. He says that, that, that the spirits are, are around us. Now, this is, this is a worldview change is what I'm, I'm trying to get at. That this is, this, he's speaking to, he's saying, referring to the devil 
as in a way that people back then would have absolutely just instantly like got it right but nowadays we, we've removed spirituality and spiritual forces so far from our lives that this sounds weird to us but pythagoras the guy who invented the pythagorean theorem you know ancient greek guy he said the whole air is full of spirits or philo the philosopher he said there, there are spirits flying everywhere throughout the air the air is the house of the disembodied spirits I mean, they believed that the air was so thick with spirits that you couldn't separate them with a needle. Like, that's how tightly that the spirits were, were just around us. You know, if you read uh, Faust by Goethe, you know, he talks about when he's the, the main character, Faust, is searching for the devil or whatever. He's trying to summon one. He's, he's, he refers to them being in the air. It's just something that the ancient peoples and even people relatively recently by historical standards have all just kind of assumed and believed that there were spirits in the air around us. And so he's saying that this enemy is trying to pull you away. He's the one who's controlling the world. He's the one pulling the strings behind the world, telling you that – trying to pull you in the wrong direction away from God. That, so we have an enemy and we have the world on the external forces acting from outside of us, pulling us away from Jesus. And then we have the internal. He calls these the passions of our flesh. Now – the word passions here is really just – it can be either a desire depending on your translation. Uh, it, it really – it just means desire, an eagerness for, an inordinate desire, a lust for the things of the flesh. And typically, if you ask most people what does – what are the, the flesh? What's, what's the passions of the flesh? They, they refer to something along sexual lines. And that's not a wrong answer, but it's not the whole answer. Paul actually addresses this, like what, what, are, what are things that go along with the passion of the flesh? In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, he, he makes a list. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, okay, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Basically, what he's saying is that anything that gives sin its chance in your life, anything that entices you to go the wrong direction, that's a desire of the flesh. That's a passion of the flesh. You know, it's it's not that it's just the sexual things in our lives, the carnal things. It's 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 anything that gives sin its chance in your life. And it's really hard to nail down a list of exactly what those things are because it's really, really subjective. What is is really tempting for one person may be a non-issue for somebody else. You know, the alcoholic, you know, shouldn't touch the first beer, but somebody who doesn't struggle with alcoholism and never has they may be able to drink one or two and it not be a big deal. You know, it's, it just depends on your experiences and the way you're wired and your characteristics as to where your weak spots for sin are going to be. And so the black and white, this is wrong, this is, this is, this is, this is shouldn't do in this, this, that kind of stuff. You really have to think carefully when you, when you say this is sin 100% of the time no matter what, okay? So it's, it's not as black and white as that. And that's part of the trick of the devil, as he, somebody can look at their life and say, man, I struggle with this. This is my issue. This is sin, and I, I, I need help getting over it. And then they see somebody else do the same thing and act like it's not sin. And then they all of a sudden become very judgmental, and it, it just creates even more division. And it's just – it's a really tangled subject that the devil is no joke about. Like he is very good at causing division. He's very good at drawing us away from Jesus. 
making sure that we go the wrong direction and that we're happy about it. And, you know, it's he's, he's gotten to the point where nowadays people will, will call any desire or any passion or any any aspiration that they feel within themselves as God-given. Like if they feel like it's part of who they are, who they were created to be, well, then it must be God-given and therefore it must be good. I mean, you see it everywhere. I see it with couples. You know, they come in and they're, they're talking to me and they're like, oh, this is, this is God-ordained. This is my soulmate. This person God wants me to be. And you're like, oh, okay. Two weeks later when they break up, you ask them like, what happened? Did God pick a new soulmate? What? You know, like it's... People like to say that if they, if they feel like it's who they're meant to be, it's 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 got to be true. I mean, you see it with sexuality, you see it with with homosexuality, and I'm sure I'm going to catch flack for saying that, but you know, to say that I was created this way, therefore God must have made me this way, it's not logical thinking. It it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Otherwise, you could say that the alcoholic who feels like their urges are God given or part of who they were, that therefore it must be okay for them to be an alcoholic. Or somebody who is, you know, a perpetual liar, you know, they're pro- they're they're given to to lying easily. It's it's part of who they are as a person. Well, that, that God must have created them that way. Or the person who is a kleptomaniac who can't help but steal. Like there are people out there like that. You see how that rabbit hole goes. The the rage monster. The the person who is vulgar nonstop, the person who is who is constantly doing things contrary to God just because it feels like part of their nature. That's just a trick of the devil. And I say all that in love. All right. I want to make sure I'm crystal clear in that. I say every bit of that in love. I don't say that towards anybody to attack anybody or to make somebody think that we don't love them or that God is just torturing them or anything like that. I'm not it's that's not what I mean at all, but I mean is that God loves each of us, but our hearts and our bodies and our minds are twisted by an enemy, by the world around us to try to pull us away from Jesus, to try to get us to be happy to go in the wrong direction. So that's continuing on. That's the problem. That is the zombie virus right there. What's the cure? Let's continue. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, God saw that we were walking dead. He saw that we had no hope of cure. If you watch every zombie movie ever, again, it's all science fiction, so it's not really a perfect analogy, but every one of these movies ever, the zombies just don't start healing. I think there actually might be one called Warm Bodies where they do start healing. But most of them, it's the zombies just stand no chance. They crave one thing themselves. They crave eating. They crave you know whatever is driving them depending on the movie or the TV show. And that's and, But here's the thing. In some of those movies, there is a cure that's discovered. right? There's a way to heal zombies, to bring them back to life, to make them who they were before. And like inevitably in those, you still see like the heroes or the main characters just going through and just offing zombies. Like you know how to cure them, you know how to save them, but you're just going to kill them anyway. Like not even self-defense. It's just, you know, no, there's a zombie, kill it. Even though like, hey, you could, ha- you could have saved their life. Like you could have brought them back to life. Thank God that he doesn't do that. That he knows we're dead and he, he came up with the cure. 
and he's giving it to us all. He, does, he isn't just wiping the slate and getting rid of us all. He is administering the cure to our zombie lives. And the cure is Jesus. The moment you become a follower of Jesus, you get on board with this whole Christianity thing, and you accept him in your life, and you have the baptism, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the effects instantly cure you of that dead lifestyle. You know, he says that you have been saved. The word there for saved is is sos, sesos menoi. I don't speak Greek. I just kind of read it when, to try to understand what Paul was mentioning here. But the, the root word is sozo, and that means to save, heal, preserve, rescue. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible, sozo. And the, the tense here is a perfect participle. So that sesos menoi, it, it, it means that you are saved. It is done, complete. You are saved. But it implies that there's, it's, there's continuing effects. See, we're saved and we're being saved. And it shows up in our lives. That there has to be more than just checking a religious box. Hey, I'm saved. I'm good. I get to go to heaven. Cool. Like, that's a waste of time. That's not why God administered the cure. He administered the cure to create something new. See, unlike zombie movies where if they're cured, they go back to who they were before normally. But in real life, you, you're, you're not, you don't go back to who you were before you were dead. You become something new. You are recreated. You are reborn into something new, something better. You know, you don't regain your innocence you lost. Nothing can get that back. But the guilt is removed. You know, every time we see somebody coming into contact with God or, or, or the Messiah, and, and when it's, it's, you see people, when they realize who it is, they just instantly want to hide. Isaiah, when he was given a vision of the throne room of heaven, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter, when he saw the risen Jesus, he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We want to create distance between us and God because we know something inside of us. When we sin, when we, we fail to hit the mark, when we realize that, we, we want to create distance between us and God. That is that guilt from our loss of innocence. When you're saved, that's removed. That's gone. Rebirth shows that, there's, that, that God isn't mad at us. That he doesn't want us to just go away. That he wants us back. He wants us close. He loves us exactly as we are, sins and all. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. I mean, that's the whole point of the prodigal son uh, parable. You know, when, we, when we're saved, it rekindles our ideas of, of right versus wrong. You know, it revives our self-control. Essentially, it turns us around and all those signs that we saw that we were heading the wrong direction... Well, the reverse, did we see them? Then it shows us that we're going in the right direction. I mean, essentially what Paul is saying is all the things that we saw in the first chapter that, that the power of God did for Jesus, well, he does for us too. You know, verses one, chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, he says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All those things... It's, it's almost a direct parable of this section we're looking at now. Or not parable, a direct copy. 
you know, the heavenly places. He shows us grace. He, he restores us. He makes us alive. He raised Jesus from life. He placed him in the heavenly places. And Paul is making—he's he's paralleling himself here. And that brings us to the last part of our section. And this, this is the section I like to think of as the gospel paradox. And this is where, like, uh, the debate of grace versus works, it usually involves these verses. So verses 8 through 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Now, this debate is like crazy old. It's really old. And it's really, 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 really annoying. Because it doesn't make sense. The two are not in opposition of each other. Now, there's parts of the, that, that, are, that argue that we are saved by our works. And to me, if you read the New Testament, it's pretty obvious that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves in any form. Whether in this life or the next life. There's, you can't save yourself. That's the whole point of Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus came for nothing. If we could save ourselves or we could suffer long enough that we eventually pay for the missing the mark, then what was the point of Jesus? The whole reason that he came was because we can't do that for ourselves. So I, I, I don't understand why this debate keeps get, getting brought up unless it's from the perspective of somebody who just misunderstands Scripture entirely. Salvation cannot be earned. You know, only perfection is good enough for a perfect God, and we're just not capable of it. You know, the minute, the very first time you mess up, you are imperfect and no longer capable of perfection. It's a debt you can't pay back. You cannot miss, you cannot hit the mark. You know, uh, William Barclay in his daily Bible study uh, commentary, he, he uses this metaphor that he calls a flawed metaphor. So, you know, those are his words, not mine, but I really like it. I've never heard it explained this way before. But he says a broken law can be atoned for. You know, it's possible to, to, to pay the punishment for a crime you commit against a law. But it's impossible to atone for a broken heart. He gives the, the illustration of a drunk driver is out driving one night and uh, he, you know, he's, he's, he's very, very tipsy. He's not in control of what he's doing and he ends up killing one of his friend's children. Gets in a car accident and one of the, his friend's children die. Awful. His friend's heart is destroyed, absolutely crushed. The guy gets convicted and he goes to prison. He pays a massive fine and he serves his time. However long passes, he gets out of jail and the mother's heart is still broken. He's paid for what he did according to the law, but he still hasn't atoned for his friend's broken heart. Only the mother giving forgiveness freely will atone for it. It has to come from the person whose heart is broken. It can't go the other way. There's nothing that person can do. God's forgiveness is freely given to us. Because when we miss the mark, when we trespass against God, we're breaking his heart. You know, so it, it, changing our thinking in terms of breaking a law versus breaking God's heart... That's that, that puts it in a new perspective for me. That that's that's the standard we fail. That we break God's heart every time we miss the mark, every time we trespass against Him, and so therefore we can't do anything to earn that. We can't do anything to fix that. 
There's nothing we can do to atone for God's broken heart. It's truly a gift given from him to us. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Brendan Manning. And Manning, uh, he's, he's, he, he explains grace in a way that so few people do. Like he's, he's brilliant when it comes to that. And I think part of it is because he was so well aware of his sin. He struggled with alcoholism his entire life. Ruined marriage, you know, cost him you know, opportunities, cost him jobs, cost him a lot because he struggled with alcoholism his entire life just about. But he was, but because of that, he was intimately aware of of grace and how much it truly is a gift, and how much we can't lose it, no matter what we do. He said in a, in a devotion he wrote, he said the question the gospel of grace puts to us is simply this: Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that your weaknesses could separate you from the love of Christ? It can't. Are you afraid that your inadequacies could separate you from the love of Christ? They can't. Are you afraid that your inner poverty could separate you from the love of Christ? It can't. Difficult marriage, loneliness, anxiety over the children's future? They can't. Negative self-image? It can't. Economic hardship, racial hatred, street crime? They can't. Rejection by loved ones or the suffering of loved ones? They can't. Persecution by authorities or going to jail? They can't. Nuclear war? It can't. Mistakes, fears, uncertainties? They can't. The gospel of grace calls out, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God made visible in Christ Jesus our Lord. You must be convinced of this. Trust it and never forget to remember it. Everything else will pass away, but the love of Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Faith will become vision, hope will become possession, but the love of Jesus Christ that is stronger than death endures forever. In the end, it is the only one thing you can truly hang on to. We are saved, and there's nothing we can do to lose that salvation once we accept it. You can reject it. I fully believe that you can reject it and lose it that way, but I... But there's nothing you can do wrong-wise to ever lose it. You're never good enough to begin with. And so the idea that, that, that salvation is something that we earn is just a ridiculous idea. It's just absolutely preposterous. There's no reason for it. But once we accept it, that has to show up in our, the way we do things, the way we live our lives. You know, Barclay in the same commentary said it's, it's the law of love is the idea that when somebody loves you and you realize that you do not deserve it, you end up spending your life trying to be worthy of it, knowing you never will be. You know, that, that's, that's the way our response to salvation should be, that we know we don't deserve it, but we're going to work to try to be worthy of it, knowing we never will be. We'll never be worthy of God's love, but we need to go to work to try to be, you know what I mean? That, that we have to change our lifestyles to match that love that we're shown. You know, verse 10, the very last one, um, he says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And there's a couple ways of, of viewing that, but the way I like is and you know again this is the only way but the way i like to view this is this is describing our lifestyle as somebody who has been reborn somebody who's been recreated who, who is a member of Christ's family 
that this lifestyle of serving, of showing love, uh, of giving the love that we are given to the people and to the world around us, that this new lifestyle, that's the response to salvation. Faith is, is the mark that we are in the family. Faith is the mark that we are saved. It is, it is our justification. It's, it's not the means we become saved. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the mark of our salvation. That's not what Paul is discussing here. He is saying that salvation happens purely as a gift. And your response is to try to spend your life working to be worthy of it, knowing you never will be. Basically, verse 10 is, is telling us the new way to be human. So that's going to wrap us up today. I really hope this was enjoyable to you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this series. I'm excited to study in depth the words of Paul. Um, I pray that you uh, get something else, that God will enable what we talk about to help you grow closer to him and to grow in knowledge and understanding of him. Uh, if you have any questions, by all means, reach out. My contact information is listed wherever this is posted, uh, and I hope to see you next week.